G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. 2 Kings chapter 21, there's a narrative. In that narrative, we experience the darkest times in the nation of Israel. Disintegration and ruin come to a culture that seems intent on evicting the sacred. And that is the lesson of the past. But we have ceased looking at the law of God and the precepts of God through the lens of the love of God. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Today we're thinking about where we're headed. In this message from the Reset series, we'll hear why we should be changing our trajectory to make sure we're focused on living in God's direction. Let's begin with Pastor Jeff from 2 Kings chapter 21. We'll hear the story of Manasseh. Okay, for those of uh, you who know me, you know that I've uh, been very clear that I I don't like country music, and I don't know why it is. Uh, I grew up in the eastern part of Tennessee. Uh, Nashville is considered to be the home of country music, but what is it about it that I don't like? And I, I remember hearing someone say that if you play country music backwards, then your wife comes back, and your dog comes home, and your pickup truck is repaired, and your beer tab is forgiven. And I started thinking, maybe this is the problem. There's enough bad news in our world without having to listen to music who glorifies it somehow, who talks about all the bad things. So maybe that's the issue. And as a pastor, I don't talk about these things that often because I know that when we do, we tend to get political. Uh, But there are times in a pastor's life that he feels like that he has to address some of these issues. I mean, if you look at our nation right now, can we not agree that this great social experiment that we've been on over the last 50 years is not working? At what point does honesty kick in? Suicide rates are forever on the rise in the United States, becoming the number one cause, very close to becoming the number one cause of death for ages 15 to 24. 15 to 24. Our youth are not even making it into adulthood. There's been a 56% increase in the last two decades in teenage suicide. School shootings, increased racism, increased teenage pregnancy and abortions, financial corruption on all levels. There's Ponzi schemes, there's Madoff schemes, markets crashing. And then you think about how things like character and integrity and responsibility and sacrifice and loyalty the essential things upon which a productive, stable society uh, is built, those things have become relics of the past. Let me read to you a quote, and then I'm going to tell you where it's from. I think it'll shock you. Here's the quote. 
It is not true that honesty and integrity always make for good business. In certain situations, doing the honest thing would be financially ruinous. And therefore, according to strict cost-benefit analysis, the risk of getting caught in a lie is clearly worth taking. Now, that was written 20 years ago in the Harvard School of Business. You think about that. So the graduates of a school like this, and this could be said about most of our major universities, are now CEOs, presidents, directors of our financial institutions. So is it any wonder then that the financial crash of 2008 had more to do with character and integrity and ill-advised, irresponsible loans where CEOs gained millions and millions of dollars in their pockets while the rest of us went bankrupt? This is merely symptomatic of a greater disease. Let's stay with me for a moment. I'll set the stage here. Last week, uh, I went over to the offices to film our weekly podcast, and I ran into an older lady that was seated over in the corner, and I recognized her. She didn't look very happy. She almost looked scared. As we talked, she is afraid that perhaps we'll never find our way home. What happened to us? How did we get here where we are? And then there's this whole thing of social media. It ain't social and it's not media. I've said this before. It's a platform for people to spew vitriolic language, to say things they would never say in the presence of the individual who has become their target. You know, someone has said that if you put YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook together, that would be a good description. It would be called you twit face. And that is the kind of people sometimes we feel who are vitriolic on social media. How did we get here though? The only thing worse than apathy is amnesia. And you and I as Christ followers have this incredible sacred privilege of being able to go back in biblical narratives, recognize the mistakes that were made, and then recognize what happened to restore the nation of God, the people of God, restoration, reconciliation. This is a time for perhaps the most important reset of all. So, in the Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 21, there's a narrative. In that narrative, we experience the darkest times in the nation of Israel. It was under the reign of a king named Manasseh. And Manasseh was able to undo, in a few short years, decades and decades of good that had happened before him. Uh, this should be a reminder to us that no matter how much good exists in a culture, No matter how solid the foundation upon which it has been founded, you're only one generation away from turning the tide toward evil. Unfortunately, Manasseh's reign lasted longer than any king before him and any king that would come after him. Now, as we look at the narrative, and I'll read the major part of the text, he did three things that destroyed his nation, his people, his society. Number one, he broke away from the ultimate point of reference. He broke away from God. There is no God. And God's law is not love. So he crossed lines of morality, a line that could not be crossed with impunity. Second, while he's denouncing God and evicting the sacred, the second thing he does, he encourages a type of heathenism that's a type of spirituality without God. And third, he sought to silence the voice of the prophets, the voices of moral absolutes. Let me read just a section of the narrative in 2 Kings 21. I'm in verse 2 through 6. Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
following the detestable practices, the detestable practices of the nations of the Lord, or the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He built or rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Now, just quickly at first glance, do you see any parallels with our day? The worship of everything under the sun, including the sun, the sacrifice of our children, and subjective morality where everybody does what is right in his or her own eyes, even if those moral precepts conflict and contradict. This past week, I read a story of a student in one of our major universities who was asked to do a paper on marriage. Now, what's important to point out, this student is a straight A student. So we're talking about a pretty good intellect here, major university. In writing his paper on marriage, he decided that he would present the biblical view of marriage. And this straight A student received a failing grade, an F. And at the top of the paper that he had written, his professor wrote these words, it is inappropriate to quote C.S. Lewis because he is a pastor. Now, first of all, the question is, why would pastors be excluded? I mean, had the student quoted Stalin or Marx or Nietzsche or Oprah or Dr. Phil, then everything would have probably been okay. But the professor went on to reveal his true motivation because at the bottom of the page, he wrote, I don't agree with your dogmatism. So what's his problem? In America today, there is an overt rejection of truth claims because truth claims bring responsibility and accountability. You can give your opinion as though you don't pretend that it is the right way to go. Opinions are okay, but truth claims are not because they demand conformity. And the highest value in the Western culture today is autonomy, not freedom, not freedom, but autonomy. I do what I want to do, where I want to do it, and when I want to do it, and no one can say otherwise. The irony is that this position of the professor, that he doesn't agree with this dogmatism, is based on the false assumption that only Christian claims are exclusive, which is ridiculous. Truth by nature, any truth statement by nature is exclusive because it excludes what doesn't agree with it or what is false. Every time you make a statement, you're assuming that it excludes everything that disagrees with it. Every worldview is exclusive at some point. The other thing to point out is, is the professor not being dogmatic in his refusal and rejection of pastors. To say that pastors have nothing of value to offer to any topic, is that not an opinion of dogmatism. The second thing is this, and I find interesting, is that C.S. Lewis was not actually a pastor. He was an English professor at Cambridge University, where Sir Isaac Newton, Stephen Hawking, and Charles Darwin taught as well. So I had to ask the question, what's really going on here? Well, the professor in this major university actually wants the same thing that Manasseh wanted in the Old Testament when he destroyed society. Freedom from the shackles of the past, get rid of God, the ultimate point of reference for all morality and goodness. 
Now, the sadness of this comes when we realize that the secular world refuses to understand the motivation for the precepts and the revelation of God in the Bible. There's no creative impulse or end result in life that provided for limitless possibilities without some parameters. In other words, everybody draws the line somewhere. In the fragile path of living, where relationships and passions collide, God in his wisdom has provided fences, walls, boundaries for our well-being that we might not stray in terrain or into terrain that destroys the very essence for which we were made. And it is these fences and walls that are coming down today with thundering force. God is a God of love and establishes fences and parameters because he knows how we are designed and he knows if we go outside those fences and parameters, it will bring disintegration upon us and on society. God's law is not arbitrarily given. It's given out of love. And in the words of G.K. Chesterton, before you remove a fence, perhaps the best question to ask is why the fence was put there in the first place. An everyday example of this, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the high school, I had a very early curfew. My father required me to be home by 10.30. And quite frankly, this was embarrassing because the girl that I was dating didn't have to be home until 11. And so I had to be home 30 minutes before my girlfriend. And, you know, I can't remember how many excuses I made. I was struggling with this. And then one day my dad came into my bedroom, sat on the bed beside me. He said, son, I want to talk to you just a moment. I know you're kind of rebelling here, but... I know what you want in your life. I know that you want a basketball scholarship so that you can go to university. And I know that you know we can't afford that. So I'm trying to help you. You need to be in bed early to do well at your studies, to keep your GPA up where it ought to be. And I know you're on the basketball court until nine o'clock at night. So you can't live that kind of life without getting enough sleep where it's gonna impact your health and your vitality and ultimately your ultimate goal. And you know, I didn't agree with everything dad said because I'm a high schooler and I don't think my brain was fully developed yet, but I do know that dad loved me and he wanted to make sure that I was able to achieve the greater goal. You know, when a father says to his son, don't do drugs, don't smoke, don't gamble, or even when a mother says to a two-year-old, you can't have candy for, for dinner, it's not motivated out of hate or even apathy but out of love. And this is what a secular generation just cannot fathom, cannot understand. Please listen carefully. As we watch weak leaders around our nation stand by and allow the destruction of our nation, please remember this, that a rebellious heart will never feel like it has enough autonomy. A rebellious heart will never feel like it has enough autonomy. And the more autonomy you give it, the more it will demand. For the founders of our nation and today's Christ followers, for us, evicting the law of God from culture is to ignore the question of design that God made us, that gave us limits, that will nourish us. And we have to ask the question of what worldview will cause flourishing and what will destroy society. Because disintegration and ruin come to a culture that seems intent on evicting the sacred. And that is the lesson of the past. But we have ceased looking at the law of God and the precepts of God through the lens of the love of God. We're like little children whose father tells us, don't play in the middle of the street because you might get hit by a car. We disobey, we play in the middle of the street, we get hit by a car, and then we blame our parents. 
When you break away from the gold standard, you no longer know what your money's worth. When you break away from, from God, the ultimate standard, you no longer know the difference between good and evil. And evicting the sacred undermines everything, not just the good, but eventually all good. So we have no God in the public arena, no prayer in our schools, and no ultimate point of reference to nourish and prosper. Here's the worst part about that, though, and then I'm going to move on. Those of us who believe in these foundations, and we believe that these foundations built our country and they should not be destroyed, we're not only being asked by society, actually, we're being demanded. They are demanding that we not only celebrate uh, the demise of the foundations, that we not only remain silent on the demise of these foundations, but we actually rejoice in the midst of it. In a book called Deliver Us From Evil, the most terrifying aspect of the foundational shifts in our time is not just the line between right and wrong has all of a sudden been made unclear, not just that morality has somehow had its boundaries altered, What has dramatically happened in your time and mine is that those of us from a religious perspective or theistic worldview or Christian worldview, we are not only being asked to erase those lines and move the fences, it is now being demanded of us that we join the celebratory cry, a triumphalist cry of those who have somehow shaken off these restrictions that religion had imposed upon them for centuries. So we're not actually merely being told to accept the breaking down of moral lines, but to celebrate the fact that it's happening. And so we, we we have redefined our terms and we have given names to something that is not good in appearance to make it appear good. So abortion now is called women's rights and we're to celebrate women's rights and same sex relationships or marriage. They're referred to as alternative lifestyles and we should celebrate alternative lifestyles. And we're even told today that we must applaud delusions. Do you remember not too long ago, there was a 45-year-old man that chose to identify as a five-year-old girl. So he dressed up in little girl's dresses with little girl makeup. And we were told that we should embrace this. Is this not sad though? I mean, if we really love someone, is this really love? Is this really merciful to become an accomplice to a delusion and to insanity? Is this really love and mercy? Is this really good for society? Good for the one who's experiencing it? When you evict the sacred, there is a heavy price to pray. And the reason is because nature abhors a vacuum. If you evict God, rest assured that something will come in and take his place, whether it's secularism or pluralism or hedonism or atheism or relativism and all these other isms that in the words of E.V. Hill, that should have been wasms, there's no such thing now as a neutral worldview. The question is what worldview truly promotes love and justice for all? Which worldview is going to hold society together? Which worldview is good for the individual and good for the for the corporate, the whole, and which worldviews will cause ultimate disintegration? Is it not fair to look around at America today and many other parts of the world? Is it not fair to look around and to say we are disintegrating? Culture is disintegrating. We ignore the fact to expel the moral law may seem very cavalier and liberating at the time, but the ramifications are catastrophic and they were meant to be. So, Manasseh does exactly this. 
He encourages society away from the ultimate point of reference, away from God, but he does a second thing. Manasseh encouraged and accelerated, in fact, heathenism. And when I use the word heathenism, I am referring to godlessness. Now, do you know what Manasseh did in his day? Let me see if I can illustrate it somehow. Uh, A couple years ago, we went on a trip to Israel. We took about 40 members of uh, a one and all church. And uh, Steve Maharg, one of the teaching pastors here, uh, went with us. And Steve and I kind of took turns as unofficial tour guides. Now, we had a fantastic Israeli tour guide. His name was Danny, and he was really good. He knew his history. I was impressed, but he didn't know his story. He didn't know how it was God's story, and he didn't relate the places we were uh, visiting to the redemption the overall plan of God in history. So Steve and I would jump in and fill in the gaps. At one point during the journey, we arrived over the Valley of Hinnom. And I was so tempted at that point to relate to the tourists who were with us a description of what actually took place in the Valley of Hinnom during Manasseh's reign. Molech, before Manasseh, Molech, the god of the Ammonites, demanded the sacrifice of children on a molten hot hot altar. Uh, It was gruesome. It was grotesque. The belief was this, that somehow if you could burn your little baby alive, that the skin would be melted off, and then the child would join the Godhead free from earthly impurities. So Manasseh becomes king and reinstitutes this practice. Now imagine, imagine... You're a young woman with your child and you're following your king Manasseh into the valley, believing that the king is going to participate and lead uh, some kind of ritual whereby the soul of your little one would be cleansed and his infirmities would be released and then he would be able to join ecstasy and eternity with some kind of Godhead. But then as the mother, you arrive and you hear the screams of the other children being sacrificed on the heathen altar. You try to turn back, but it's too late. One historian wrote this, nighttime seems to have been the special time for these awful immolations. The yells of the children bound to the altars or rolling into the fire from the brazen arms of the idol. The shouts and hymns of the frantic crowd, the wild tumult of drums and shrill instruments by which the cries of the victims were sought to be drowned rose in discordance over the city, forming with the whole scene visible from the walls by the glow of the furnaces and flames, such an ideal of transcendent horror that the name of the valley became and still continues in the form of Gehenna, the usual word for hell, the valley of Hinnom. Removing the good in a society never stops with just one step. Defiance of this kind of magnitude where you're sacrificing your children does not result from a momentary outburst of one single issue. It happens over a period of time when you've evicted the sacred or the ultimate point of reference, when man is left up to himself to be God and determine right and wrong. And rebellion that sees no sanctity of life will never be satisfied. Okay, Pastor Jeff, I can see your point, but we're far too educated in America, far too advanced to sacrifice our children on the molten altar. Really? You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. 
Manasseh, when he realizes what he had done to society, falls on his face and repents, but it's too late. And a whole generation emerged that was lost, self-aggrandizing, self-centered, entitled, and self-law. Evict the sacred, evict God, evict prayer, and evil will run rampant. That's what's happening today. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.